Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I am joined once again, after a long absence, by our elite, irregular panelist, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. So, Bruce, you brought us something a little different today. Uh, I think this is probably going to be for a winter of wargaming that we're going to be putting together. Uh, that's still in the planning stages, but this episode's been in the can for quite a bit. We just didn't have a chance to put the final editing pass on it uh, for, for a while. But this is an interview you did with Lou Cotney, and I think certainly when you brought this to my door, and I think a lot of listeners uh, would be in the same boat, the first question is, well, who, who's Lou Cotney? Uh, what's, what's his body of work? Um, and so I thought maybe we could set this conversation up a bit and you could uh, contextualize Lou's, Lou, and, Lou and Lou's work uh, for us here. Yeah, well, I think Lou is uh, one of the real old school gamers who kind of epitomizes the kind of DIY ethic that existed in wargaming uh, a long time ago, where the games that were coming out weren't really the games that people, I mean, they, they weren't the games, they weren't in the form that people wanted. They There were, you know, rough edges and things that didn't work and they didn't like, and so people just decided they, they'd fix them and they they just change them around and change rules and add new rules. And uh, Lou was at the forefront of this uh, for a game called Stalingrad, which I think was uh, published first in 1963, and was a was an interesting game, but it had really nothing to do. It was about the um, the invasion of of uh, the Soviet Union by the Germans, and it went from 1941 to 43, and really had no historical connection to the campaign at all. I mean, it, it didn't play in the in the sense that we think of historical war games these days. There was nothing historical about it. It was kind of a kind of a mess. Uh, and f so for years, people were uh, busy making variants and changing the rules and saying, well, we're never really getting any armored breakthroughs. How can we get armored breakthroughs? Uh, which is, by the way, ludicrous if you think about it in a game about Barbarossa, but that was the fact. Um, and that, I think, extended through Lou's career as a designer for just... The whole course of it, uh, he has a website that uh, we will have a link to for the podcast. You can download some of his games. He has a lot of uh, print-and-play games where you just print them out and uh, and play them. He has a lot of designs. Uh, but over the years, he really seemed to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II and try to get a game that did the things that he thought were important because Stalingrad didn't do it. And uh, you'll you'll find Lou Cotney variants in... Uh, issues of the general uh then he published a game called uh dark crusade uh he published a game that was a regular box game he published his uh uh what i think is probably his magnum opus uh sturmnach austin as a magazine game i think it was in the war gamers published by uh 3w worldwide wargaming um and he just has all of these ideas and i think he's a really interesting guy uh he lives in norway and he, although he, I mean, he's an American, he's as American as, as anybody, but uh, but happened to move to Norway and now lives in uh, outside Oslo, I think, and has a, a war game club where people play, uh, he gets together and plays, and he just designs all these crazy things. And um, and he's a really interesting guy to talk to, and I, I've always wanted to talk to Luke Cotney about his designs, and uh, so I did. 
Okay, well, uh, apologies if you heard my dog Mina barking in the background. Mina was not present for this interview, uh, so she will not be on the track. And uh, I think with that, let's let's dive into this interview with Lou Cotney. Tonight, I I have a very special guest, Lou Cotney. He is coming to us from Norway, and uh, he is a, uh, a a war game, a true war game grognard and a fixture of the hobby. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so Lou, uh, we were just chatting before the show, but I just want to pick up again uh, where we were talking. That uh, you know, I have a lot of I have a lot of Lou Cotney stuff in my house. Uh, there's uh, Lou. You have been in the hobby for for many years. You you remember the 1960s Stalingrad box as being the as being the Stalingrad. Um, you've written a lot about Stalingrad. Tell me tell me about how you got in the hobby and just like. How, why, how, how you ended up being here? Well, um, I grew up in Rock Island, Illinois, on Brittany Lane. Uh, we were going to secede from uh, the city and the state and declare our own country. But we had, uh, we had 34 boys in the 17 houses on our end of the lane. And we would. Um, the, I was one of the younger kids, although I was one of the taller. And the older kids would get into stuff, and then I'd sort of tag along. And one of the things they got into was chess. And uh, so by the time I learned how to play chess, their interest had passed. And that, that got my interest in board games. And then in 1959, I guess, when I was about almost 13 years old, uh, for Christmas, I asked and got Tactics 2. And, of course, none of my friends knew how to play it, and my family didn't want to touch it. And... Um, so I had to, I decided to come up with my own rules. And once you are, once you are a revisionist, uh, then uh, it's a quick step to becoming a designer. You know, why mess with that? Why not just do it right, quote unquote, uh, from the ground up? And so then I got other Avalon Hill games. Uh, D-Day, I think, was the next, which fascinated me, and the Hexagonal Grid, which at first appalled me, but then made sense. And um, then, uh, then I think Stalingrad, which is a big disappointment because there is no there are no big breakthroughs or whatever. And um, then Africa Corps, et cetera, et cetera. Um, would you like to know a little of my background as far as the military? Yes, and that kind absolutely. Of please, please that tell us. A lot of my thinking. Um, my dad was a U.S. Army Air Force Master Sergeant in China, Burma, India, stationed on the Dhaka base in East India. And so I grew up a baby boomer um, and idolized anything World War II. And uh, so anyway, um, I uh, wanted to go to West Point, and I dreamed of that. And uh, I went, um, and we had to, for example, Mr. Hewitt, who was the chief executive officer of John Deere, supported my nomination, things like this. And trouble was, a month before I went there, I, or maybe two months, I met and took out this pretty little Swedish-Danish-American girl. And so my life goals... Maybe I didn't want to become another Rommel or Lawrence of Arabia, not knowing much about Lawrence of Arabia, uh, after all. And uh, after a semester at West Point, I dropped out. And uh, I 
I had a rough time at West Point, but that following summer of 1965, and I think there's a song about that, uh, 65, um, she put me back together again. And then I went to college. I got the RO, I had to be in the military in some form, so I went into ROTC at Knox College, which is where John Podesta got his degree by uh, coincidence. He was Hillary's campaign manager. Um, and uh, I got the Chicago Tribune Gold Medal Award for ROTC and then dropped out of that um, when things broke up personally and got a job in the post office. And I had heard nothing from the draft board. So I checked and they uh, hadn't they had lost my records. So in early December 1966, I volunteered for the draft. During my two years, I counted almost every day. Uh, I wanted nothing to do with war games, military history, or whatever. Unfortunately, my mother interpreted that to throw out my war comics, which are now priceless. Mm. And uh, then I came back to go to college on the GI Bill and the Illinois State Scholarship. I actually made money by going to expensive little Augustana College in Rock Island, yeah, yeah, to uh, to take out girls. <laughs> That's why. And uh, anyway, my... Uh, Second to the last year, I found out that there was this guy named Frank Chadwick uh, who was a student there and was a war gamer. All for two years, I didn't know anything about this, and so we got together in, a, in an empty floor of North Hall. It was a hot summer day. He was having to make take a makeup course before he could graduate, and we played the brand new strategy and tactics France 1940 by John Prados. Just came out the magazine. It was my first. Strategy and Tactics uh, magazine. That's why I subscribed. And we played with my revision. And I didn't like the CA force counterattack mechanic that John has in it. And uh, I won. <laughs> of course. And so Frank invited me over to his student apartment the next day. And um, he wanted to play his revision of Africa Corps, which was single-factor step reduction, and he wanted to be the Axis. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, but first, we had to find the components. Do you want to, And he, they had a shag rug. He, Frank had very long hair. This was, you know, 1971 and Vietnam and all this, and he was very much a Vietnam-era student. And uh, he had long hair, and so did his roommate, Munson, who became Balboa Game Company out on the West Coast briefly. And, and uh, before we could play his revision of Africa Corps, we had to find the components. And on the f shag rug floor, deep shag rug, were the components of all, most all of the Avalon Hill games at that time. And I'll never forget holding up the, what was it, 8th, uh, 5th Panzer, no, 8th Panzer Regiment of the, 5th Panzer Regiment of the 21st Panzer Division, Hanging from it by a long human hair was a dried bean. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we did find all the components, and we played Frank's revision. And of course, I got smeared because single-factor step reduction uh, was German panzer regiments. Uh, but you anyway. never get rid of them, yeah. Yeah, so after I met a pretty girl uh, at Augustana. I actually re-met her. She, her family went to my church. They didn't know much about me. They, I had been a football hero in high school, and... Anyway, um, and went, after getting my degree in philosophy at Augustana, I went down to uh, Champaign-Urbana for my master's in librarianship. And Frank uh, had gone down to Illinois State University, just 60 miles back up the road, 
in Bloomington Normal, and he had gotten a contract and then to do simulations, and then he used that to start Game Designers Workshop. And uh, so he was uh, designing uh, Drang nach Austin when I was down in Champaign-Urbana, and I had the University of Illinois map library, you know, and I, was, I kept saying, Frank, listen, you know, if you want me to look over the map or anything, just just let me know. That's uh, okay, Luke. And, of course, on the on the drawing of Augustine map, Voronezh is 100 miles out of position. Um, and I've never let him forget that. <laughs> anyway, but, you know, what he did was tremendous. Uh, you know, Frank had the vision. He had the dedication. And, um, um, of course, Game Designers Workshop just took right off. Um, after getting – I was the um, – War Games Club sponsor for University High School, where my assistantship had me the assistant librarian. And in 19, in the summer of 1970, uh, well, in 1972-73, that was not fashionable, you know, Vietnam. And uh, I swear, I think some of the other faculty members thought I was goose-stepping the kids uh, <clears throat> during our meetings, but we had the smartest kids in the school. And... Uh, Plato, the instructional uh, system that University of Illinois and the U.S. Navy were pioneering, uh, was catty-cornered across. And the uni high, university high school kids would take their lunches and go over there. One of the kids, Dave Fumetto, uh, who I think has moved to Israel, he got in trouble the previous year for trying to scale the front of the high school, which is an old Gothic structure, to read some reserve readings he hadn't been able to read or did had forgotten to read, but uh, he was brilliant, and so I had this single-playing game of Midway. And he was interested, he didn't know much about war games, and he wanted a project on Plato, because the high school kids, they, the university was letting, because these were the smartest kids in, in the area. And so he went over there, and one night, the whole system was shut down, because somebody was monopolizing the memory, which back then was in K's. And they went to all the terminals, and they finally found Dave sitting there. And, of course, they just jumped all over him for wasting uh, memory space. And then they discovered he had found all kinds of new ways to compact. And so the following year, after I was gone, he was hired as a student assistant to teach the uni high kids Plato. Anyway, I went up, I walked right into a job up in Alaska, in the Alaska State Library, and the oil money had just started coming. And there were a few um, gamers up there, and we played both miniatures, naval miniatures, and board games. And um, then I started doing my own stuff a little more, and I, my own um, uh, my own games. Never, And finally, I, I did a desktop-published, photocopied, and um, Sturm nach Osten, ich Sturme nach Zapat. That's German. German and Russian. Yes, assault to the east, and then in Russian, and assaults to the west. And uh, so I sold that as a photocopy uh, desktop, and people were interested because it was new and different. It had new concepts. And um, uh, Kim Mainz who's a long time, he's a grown yard, has a tremendous collection. He lives in north, northeast Iowa. 
Uh, he was, he was, and David Garlett, these guys were among my first customers. And I sold this thing in legal size format, so it had to go out in a special long envelope. Well, anyway, then Keith Poulter over in London, uh, Wide World Wargamers, um, the Wargamer magazine, um, this piqued his interest and he wanted to publish it. And I said, okay, but I keep copyright and publication rights. And he said, okay, okay. And um, so it came out. Uh, in uh, the Wargamer. Yeah. Oh, I have that uh, the, the that version, the the Wargamer version, that nice blue cover. You had the um, t- talk to me. So I want to hear about that game because uh, for the listeners, um, you know, like you you sort of you sort of mentioned it in passing, but when when Stalingrad came out, it was a huge disappointment because Stalingrad was more of a um, Sort of World War One in Russia, kind of. Well, not even World War One in Russia, because in World War One in Russia there was some movement. But uh, in in Stalingrad, it was just a you sort of set up a line, and then the Germans attack it, and then you set up a line. And the thing that often would save the Russians was the time, because the Germans would run out of time. They'd have this this like massive two year offensive that would sort of take the whole game. There was no counterattack really. Um, the, the the Russians would attack would, would attack Finland and and slowly grind the Finns down depending on how much the Germans put there. But it was I mean I had I remember the first time I I played the game I was a kid and um, I was doing a lot of play by my postal mail and I wanted to play Stalingrad. I had heard it was you know this is this great game Stalingrad. So I we said it you know I found an opponent and we started playing it and I was convinced that you know I was I was in probably in junior high and I was convinced I was doing it wrong because. There was no. It was not the Russian front. It was this weird. It just made no sense. Yes. Well, it was. It was a great game for kid brothers as the Russians to drive older brothers crazy. <laughs> um, I. You've seen all my revision articles yeah. about Stalingrad in the Avalon Hill General and maybe some other end comments. Uh-huh. And of course, George Phillies, yes. who protects the integrity of Stalingrad like it were the Mona Lisa. Um, painting. Um, he and I have had a great dialogue. Well, I've come out with my own core to army level Russian front games, um, which I consider um, superior. Um, not just Sturmnach Austin. Uh, a simpler game is uh, German Eagle versus Russian Bear, which is free on Kotney History. And r- right now I should mention um, I have about 30 free print-and-play games there, including um, German Eagle vs. Russian Bear and, um, and others, uh, all, now all different uh, areas, the Pacific as well as um, the Russian Front and the West. Uh, and also, let me emphasize that I'm now 72 years old, and two and a half years ago I had a heart attack um, under a lot of stress about my son over here being bullied, <clears throat> um, which I finally helped stop. Um, and, um, so, um, people are strongly advised to download now anything you would ever want from Cotney history, uh, because, uh, we're all mortal. And of course we lost John Hill recently and, uh, oh, and I've got a great story about Dana Lombardi and John Hill and me in uh, Washington, D.C. We're uh, going to hear that. We're going to hear that story. But I, you had mentioned, before <laughs> we get too far away from it, you mentioned you mentioned the name George Phillies. And I want to I want to talk a little bit about, cause so so for the listeners, there's a, so Lou Cotney be, became this sort of, um, 
this uh, character revisionist monsters pop up in the general uh, on on regular on a regular basis saying you know this is how you fix Stalingrad and this is how you fix Stalingrad and well why don't we change this rule and let's do this and 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 sort of it'd be just a little better if we did this yeah exactly and there's I mean there's a there's a um, there's a war game uh, war gamers guide to Stalingrad that came out and uh, you know there's 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 a there's an article from from Lou that basically goes in and um, it's so I think it's I think it's one of your later ones where you're sort of trying to trying to round up all of your uh, yeah it's, right. yeah it's a once more into the rubble of Stalingrad a revisionist's reply to unjust criticism and that unjust criticism I think was from um, George Phillies wasn't it uh, so G- George Philly probably George Phillies um, uh, was a was a is a gentleman uh, who really. Uh, he's written a book called, well, a ebook. Uh, you can get it, pr- a printed copy uh, called uh, Stalingrad for Beginners, uh, and he really uh, advances this. I think it's a, it's kind of an old, an old hobby ideal of the, um, of the competitive war game, as the the war game that you play over and over and over, and you learn right. all the ins and outs, and you, right. you know, you, if you changed, if you changed one factor on yes. one unit. I finally concede that he is right. Uh, why, I mean, the map for old Stalingrad, it had Sevastopol on the wrong corner of the Crimean Peninsula. So, uh, and as a game, it's an institution into itself, unto itself. And if we can produce other games, uh, which are uh, more realistic, more historical, then let's go that route and leave Stalingrad alone. And my new game, and I want to get into this one, Robot Barbarossa has ruined me for all other core and army-level games, uh, Russian uh, Barbarossa games. Um, uh, not only Stalingrad, but then um, John Estelle's 1941 Operation Barbarossa, one of uh, Game Designers Workshop's Series 120 games, uh, came out with its unique monster panzer group units uh, and i've got a review of it panzer ogres or the creatures that ate ivan and uh you see i went down to game designers workshop to play test Sturmnock austin um they were interested in it but frank and mark and um uh, the other fellows and i couldn't come to terms um the royal was small and of course they wanted copyright and publication rights, and I wasn't prepared to surrender that. So I just, you know, we, we parted as friends, and then they did their own. And, of course, I was concerned that 1941, John Estelle's 1941 would be, would uh, take a lot from um, but no, no, it was... Completely different it, game. Yes, it's fascinating. And I think I reflect that in my review. How do, you, uh, how do you how do you how do you feel about that kind of treatment of the Eastern Front where you're I mean because because there's there are multiple you know sort of sort of theories of how to how to how to do the Eastern Front right what, what's your what's what's the, what's the most important thing that you think as a war as a as a game designer you know if you're going to try to try to recreate the Eastern Front what are you trying to get at Okay well you have to cover the essential variables, uh, the Russian replacement rate, um, the German um, operational superiority. The Russians had better tanks, of course, but the Germans had radio communications to make better use of theirs and to surround and isolate uh, masses of Russian forces. 
um, the weather um, and the geography itself. Now, there's, and I think I cover these pretty well in uh, Strudnok Austin, Germany versus Russian Bear, War Against Russia, um, which is a somewhat simpler, conventional hex encounter, uh, quarter army level game. Um, and, oh, and of course I've got my monster, uh, division to core, well, brigade to division to core level game, death struggle. But something that has always been missing in these, which my new robot Barbarossa deals with and makes it, for me, it sort of ruined me for all my other Barbarossa games, um, uh, which is sort of sad, actually. Okay, so Bruce, we're about to get into a big conversation about a game called Robot Barbarossa. And I think my first question for you is, well, what is Robot Barbarossa? Is it what if Operation Barbarossa but fought by robots? Or is it implying something else here? Uh, well, I can answer that with two words. Mecca. Fantastic. Yeah. No, I, I, I wish. Uh, actually, I don't wish. I, I really like uh, what Lou's done, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it's not it's not a uh, it's not an anime take on Barbarossa, although there that does exist. Uh, I want to say say that that there's definitely a game in which uh, anime girls uh, invade the Soviet Union. Uh, Valkyria Chronicles Four. Uh, uh, you can, you can listen to the three moves ahead on that. Oh, okay, it's a terrific game. Uh, it it is a bit though. What if uh, Barbarossa were performed by a plucky uh, Holland uh, freedom fight, fighting force? Ah, interesting. So it's okay. it's a bit incoherent. But to your point, yeah. this is. This is not. This is just Barbarossa. Yeah, this is just Barbarossa. Um, <clears throat> the reason it's a robot is that uh, this is Lou's um, attempt at a, uh, a solitaire game. Although the game is playable uh, by both pl- by two players, but you can uh, you can play the solitaire, and uh, I think that's the reason for the name robot. And um, Lou has some interesting thoughts about what should be included in a in a solitaire barbarossa game so i won't give away the spoilers uh just uh go ahead and let's hear what lou has to say this is lou's design uh robot barbarossa uh a solitaire game about the eastern front the thing about robot barbarossa is that you have three sets of russian mechanized core uh, tank units and three sets Sorting sets. These are sorting arrays. Uh, you have so many twos, so many ones, and so many zeros, and they're going to be hidden on the board. Except if the Rus- if the Russian player is the live player, he does get to see the tanks because tanks are tanks and can be quantifiable. Whereas the human factor, you know, what was the morale of the Russian uh, Red Army overall? Were they w- were they more than willing to turn on Stalin? Were more of them going to fight harder to defend? Russia, um, the Germans didn't know what they were invading. Um, they thought they did, um, but they didn't. And so you have three arrays, strong, medium, and weak, uh, separate arrays for both the tank and the infantry Russian units. And then you shut your eyes, however you can do this. You, I have special little pieces of paper. You, you randomly mix them up, and you select one from the tanks and one from the infantry. And and you put the units on the board face down, and you don't find out what they are until, of course, you attack them, like in the old Panzer Group of Guderian system. <clears throat> but the thing is, you don't know the overall strength of the Russians in either category. 
um, if the sorting groups you you took the strongest and the weakest, that averages out to the medium. This is theoretically the historical uh, for both branches. However, if one of the groups you've kept is the medium, then the overall group is either going to be strong or weak. And for example, uh, in the infantry, <clears throat> there are eight two-factor infantry armies in the strong array, um, five in the medium array, and only two in the weak. So if you take the medium and strongest, you get 13 two-factor armies, which can be very unpleasant surprises, as I experienced in the last game here in the RA's War Game Club, but Club here in Oslo. Um, we were playing live players, uh, first live player game. Or if it's the lower side, there are only going to be seven two-factor um, Russian infantry armies. And of course, you get a one-factor bonus for, for Forrest. So the German player does not know how hard he should push, especially in the opening turns. If the Russian is weak and he's cautious, uh, he's going to, the Russian player is going to get compensation victory points and he's going to lose. However, if the Russian player is strong and he, he pushes too hard, he's going to lose crucial strength, even though at the end of the game he may get some compensation points. And so the in Robot Barbarossa, the live player, uh, even um, the Russian, because the Russian infantry is still hidden for him, doesn't know exactly what the Russian strength is. And that fog of war, that unpredictability, uncertainty, is not only exciting, at the last meeting, guys were hearing me yelling, usually in agony. Um, for example, the strongest unit on the board is the four-factor Fourth Army, which is also true for my much simpler, uh, smaller-scale game, Germany versus Russian Bear. And you need it to for any attack on Moscow. Um, and there are three, two, uh, three attack, two defense uh, Panzer groups, four of those, and the other seven uh, are eventually are two-factor. Well, there was this Russian infantry unit sitting there in the forest um, uh, just west of the Dnieper River uh, to the east of Minsk. And so I had my four-factor, fourth army, and two one-factor infantry corps. And I'd, I wanted to take that hex. And I was feeling confident because there hadn't been, the Russian infantry didn't seem that strong. And so we flipped it over. It was a two-factor. Okay. So that made it three because it got the bonus for the forest. Uh, my six against is three, two to one. Well, one or two is a full exchange. Um, and I rolled it. Okay, well, how am I going to cover three factors? I had to lose the four-factor fourth army and the extra factor. And it's those kinds of really unpleasant surprises that make Robot Barbarossa, for me anyway, and for others I've played, an entirely different um, experience. I've recommended it to uh, Tom Russell at Hollandspiel. You know, they did two times game set. But I, he, he's got a full plate. I don't think he's gotten around studying the game yet. But um, anyway, that's a major factor in the Russian front that people seldom 
increment into a Russian front game. The Germans had no idea what they were getting into. And the Russians had no idea what was going to happen either. Um, and, of course, uh, Stalin had the NKV, NKVD trying to make sure the Red Army troops uh, didn't bug out or even join the um, Germans against the Congress. Uh, so, um, does that answer your question? Of, uh, the, the, the huge unknown that happened when on, on June 22nd, 41, is really the, right. is, is the thing you're trying to capture. I think that's fascinating. You did a game called Dark Crusade also, didn't you? Yes. Oh, I forgot to bring it here. Yeah. Yes. That was was that point to point. Yes. Tell me about tell me about how that's I mean that's completely different. How did you why did you decide you were going to go point to point for Dark Crusade? I wanted it simple, and um, of course uh, Barbarossa to Berlin, Ted Racer's game is point. And you may remember that I had a lively debate with him about whether or not he should have included the Barano Vici to Bobrisk point to points. Bramovici Slutz, which he left out. And he said, oh, there's a card that covers it. But uh, um, anyway, um, and Ty Bomba um, was my game developer. And, of course, Keith Poulter, this was a 3W game. Uh, he had moved to California from London at that time. Oh, about Strumnock Austin. You know, the publisher was in London, the designer was in Alaska, and the printer was in Hong Kong. So it was very much a wide world war game. But anyway, um, so I was trying to get information, uh, and Ty sort of took over the German order of battle, which the thing was that uh, things were very much in disarray <laughs> at 3W at the time. And uh, they paid my way, as I remember, down to Dallas for Origins. Which is the first time I got to I, I didn't get to final do a final proof on the game components and I went shock because for example the uh, Panzer Corps instead of being two factors were one factor etc <clears throat> and as long as I was playing there was this one guy uh, from the Air Force Academy or something uh, an officer who loved it uh, and. He was playing the Russians, and whenever there was an air battle, his guys won all against the odds. I was accusing him of cheating professionally in the game, <laughs> uh-huh. which he loved. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of people were really upset with good reason. And especially, well, anyway, so um, I wanted to do a revision of the rules. And instead, Keith gave it to a guy in Indiana to do, and he didn't really understand things. I had to. And he was the one who got paid for the rewrite. <laughs> well, well, anyway, but um, I've got the game um, up on my webpage, or at least um, the revised rules to it. And those who have gotten into it with the corrected rules and order of appearance chart, and I've got a corrected one there on Cotney history, um, love it because it's it, – the thing that Ty, Ty did something which made me come up with the idea of the number of rounds of combat being inversely proportionate to the number of units that could advance after combat down the line as breakthrough. The more time a battle took, the less fewer units were going to be able to get advanced. 
And that was, and uh, I think that was my um, refinement of a change he wanted, which was different. So there were a lot of good concepts in Dark Crusade, even though it got badly panned by the critics. And then people tended to blame me and Ty when <laughs> other things were, other factors were work. But did you notice that there's also now a Darkest Crusade? No, I did not notice that. Yes, and it has the same basic system, except I went ahead and did this in hexagons. Uh, same number of spaces from Warsaw to Moscow. And the board game geek, I've got uh, my list of Russian front games by their... Uh, I started... A li- no, somebody else started a list. Um, um, because I kept referring to a game scale by the number of hexes from Warsaw to Moscow. Anyway, um, so it's the same scale as Dark Cruise, and it uses the same basic uh, mechanics, but it has the hexagons. Um, and, um, well, I've got a friend here. Uh, he was born in Sardinia. He became a Swiss citizen. He uh, works for an oil company uh, in graphics or something. And he loved miniatures, and he actually did tabletop, a tabletop terrain map of darkest crusade that we could play on and it's beautiful but you know all these little cardboard pieces on this uh war game miniatures uh landscape it's uh, right there's a little bit of sort of aesthetic dissonance there yeah it doesn't quite doesn't quite work out yeah um tell so you've got you've got um you've got sturmnock austin was was really your sort of reimagining of stalingrad i think You, you and what was the because um, there's there are no unknown units in Sturmnock Austin. No. So when you finally decided, okay, Stalingrad's not going to work. George Phillies can have his game. He can. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to, uh, to 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 a different game. What was yeah. what were the fundamental things that you you tried to do? I have that game, uh, and I, like I yeah. said, and I've I played it. And I enjoy it. You see, when the Germans attacked. In some places, they got knocked back because the Russians fought hard in some places. In other places, they got breakthroughs. <clears throat> and um, and then they had the operational flexibility to exploit those breakthroughs. Um, and in Sturmnock Austin, you have that. Um, you can press an attack and risk exchanges, and there's a whole... Uh, different levels for different exchange levels for different results to get the hole. And then you can pour units through the holes. And the thing about the Panzer units is they can go short distance and keep their total strength, or they can go farther, exploit deeper, but then they get flipped over to their uh, weaker strength and they have to spend a turn refitting. And so that was a basic mechanic of the game. But there was unpredictability there uh, as to uh, where you would get a hole. And um, and the combat results were uh, different enough that uh, even at um, moderate odds, you could get a, a big breakthrough and things could happen, as happened historically. Now, do you have... Have, have you... Um have you followed the sort of the development of, of uh, I mean, I know you're 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 in Oslo. You're, you play play a lot of war games, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're following the games that are coming out. I mean, there was a there was a game that that came out a long time ago called uh, that's Craig, Craig Taylor's Russian Front, which I think think didn't quite 
it was an odd game. Um, but the the sort of what's happening now with the with the more recent Eastern Front games, if you played Ted Racer, has a, has what, a really what good. What was one. that game? Pardon? The game you were referring to as being the odd game. What oh, was Russia, it? it was called uh, Russian Front by S. Craig Taylor. Oh yeah, that was yeah, the Avalon Hill he, game. He had he had sat in on the Dark Crusade games at Origins in Dallas, in in a, and then he went uh, back. And of course, S. Craig Taylor is, uh, is quite a designer himself. Yeah. But he, the thing he unfortunately, I didn't like, we unfortunately lost him a few years ago. Um, the thing I didn't like about it was that it was one unit attacking one other unit, and that just wasn't the way combat happened in World War II. The whole idea was to mass units, uh, and like in the Battle of the Bulge, when uh, our guys were so outnumbered by the best of the uh, um, <clears throat> the best of the Panzer units, etc. Well, the um, so so that that game was kind of odd, but there's I mean, uh, you you talked about uh, Barbarossa to Berlin, uh, uh, or um, uh, and there, but there are plenty of other games. I mean, there's uh, Ted Racer also did uh, the Dark Valley, which I think is a, is a tremendous game. Um, and then uh, Frank Chadwick is now doing the whole. He's trying he's trying to do Europa all over again. Yes. Uh, yes. But uh, at a smaller scale. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, and he's. I, got, I invested. Now I'm retired, and I'm on a very restricted income over here in very expensive Norway. But I invested my ninety nine dollars uh, in the um, Kickstarter uh, Thunder in the East because, in in no small part, because we're friends. I definitely want to see Frank back in board game design. Yeah, I guess, well, it's def- very different from your you. You really do um, have the. Uh, I, I guess you're kind of a. I would call you. Uh, a sort of impressionist designer because you're always adding things that kind of try to capture something about the campaign in a, in a in an offbeat way. I feel. Well, would you would you maybe, is that fair or unfair? Maybe, maybe not offbeat, but undiscovered. Way. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, also, I'm a minimal, minimalist. Um, I try to keep my games as absolutely simple as possible, yet retaining the essential historical detail. I've got a couple of examples of this. <clears throat> My Mortain game, uh, once again, free to print off and play on Coatney History, and the pieces are all single-sided. So, you know, a lot of guys, even when there isn't that m- many ga- uh, pieces to mount on both sides on cardstock or uh, Excuse me, mat board. And they don't have mat board over here in Norway. They don't? No. No, it's amazing what sometimes Norway doesn't have. Um, anyway, um, I discovered in the research that, of course, in most games, 2nd Pan- SS Panzer Division, which was guilty of the Oradour Massacre, and 1st SS Panzer and 21st Panzer, which was supposed to be the lead unit, are in the games. 116th Panzer at the far north end was supposed to be in the game also, or in the offensive also, but it wasn't. And the reason was that its commander, General von Panzertruppen Gerhard von Schweren, good Prussian Junkers family, was a member of the Hitler assassination conspiracy. And, um, he he held back the 116th Panzer Division for the first two crucial days, 48 hours. 
And so I've got in the game 50-50 chance of him being loyal, and it makes for an entirely different game. The Germans actually do, even in the face of uh, Allied artillery and air power, have a chance of breaking through the 30th Division and the others. You see, First Army was coming down, uh, breaking through, and its units were all scattered. If you look at the starting units on the map... You're talking about the American First Army. Um, the American units, yes. Uh, in the, this is in the West to defend Avranche from the attack um, at Mortain, through Mortain. Um, and so they're, they're disorganized, and they have artillery units, sort of uh, divisional, and the three regiments. And so you've got all these American units all scrambled, all intending to go south to help flank the, the German pocket and create the Ar- Argentin Falais pocket. And all of a sudden they get hit from the, well, they knew they were coming. <clears throat> but anyway, so I got that in the game. And nobody, now another example, uh, and that, that was key. Um, and designers have overlooked it. it it's not offbeat. It's, um, it was undiscovered, uh, an undiscovered fact of the battle. Now, something else is my game Mongoose versus King Cobra which is the Indian Ocean, the Japanese carrier raid into the Indian Ocean. Well, um, and, you know, I, I know Jack Green on Facebook and, and uh, all the other games that I've seen, there's no possibility of the Japanese attempting a landing on Ceylon, on Sri Lanka. And Churchill was quoted as saying that the Japanese incursion into the Indian Ocean was for him the most dangerous moment of the war which sort of hit me when I read that quote. And the reason was, if they, if the Japanese had taken Ceylon or Sri Lanka, um, they would have dominated the Indian Ocean, and the Indian, the Allied front in India would have collapsed completely. Plus, they might have been able, the Japanese would have been able to interdict our supply line around Cape uh, Horn, um, or is that Cape Hope? Cape Hope. Cape Good Hope. Um, Yes, um, up the east side of Africa to supply 8th Army, uh, which never had its supply line strategically um, broken. But if the Japanese had Ceylon with their extra long-range bombers, they could have, and using it as a base. So in my game, the Japanese player secretly finds out whether or not he has landing on Ceylon as a mission. And the Allied player has to sweat it out. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it's one thing for a raid. It's another thing to try to, and, but there's another undiscovered detail in all this. Um, Ceylon had three brigades, uh, apparently well equipped or in a light infantry way of infantry, uh, Ceylon, Ceylonese defense force. And one was called the Planters Brigade. So the tea planters had sponsored this brigade or something. Well, the Salonese have been radicalized by Trotskyists. If you can imagine Trotskyists all the way down in the Indian And, for example, Cocos Island is south of uh, Sumatra. And it was a key communications link because there was a cable that ran from Australia to Coco, then to uh, India. Uh, it was attacked in the First World War, I think. I uh, think it, it, uh, the uh, Emden, uh, I think, attacked 
Cocos Island to try to knock out that uh, that cable. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so after the fall, of course, you've seen I've got a game about the fall of the Dutch East Indies and Malaya. It's called Debacle. With all the, all those different units, um, air units and ship units, whereas the Japanese, of course, have homogenous units and very effective units. And, oh, and a key of that game, I'll get back to the Cocos Island in a minute, um, was that the Dutch had built secret airfields uh, in the Dutch East Indies. And they believed in, they believed due about bombers being supreme. And so they were going to bomb any encroaching enemy Japanese ships from their secret bases. <clears throat> However, it only took one mission for the Japanese to get hit and then follow the planes back to their secret bases. So the Japanese immediately sent troops to take those bases and the Dutch, in effect, had built the Japanese forward air bases for them, which is one, which is one reason the fall of the Dutch East Indies was two months sooner than the Japanese had expected. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, the Japanese air, land, and sea campaign in the Dutch East Indies is amazing. Um, far better, of course, than the German landing up here, or air land first time air, land, and sea invasion up here in Norway. So anyway, that was a secret. I don't know that any other game about the Dutch East Indies brought out the secret Dutch airfield. I don't so think I've seen one. Pardon? I don't think I've I don't think I've seen a rule like that in a game. Right, and that's that was basic to the campaign. Um, so there's some dummy pieces, and then there are the real secret air bases, which of course the Dutch player knows. But um, even the real air bases have to be, some have to be so far north, otherwise all the dummies would be north and all the real ones. Well, anyway, to get back to the Cocos Island. Um, so, after the fall of the Dutch East Indies, of course, everyone expected the Japanese to take Cocos Island. And there were uh, British officers and non-coms and a platoon or so of Salinese troops. Well, the Salinese troops expecting the um, Japanese mutiny. They killed um, uh, about half the British officers and non-coms and then awaited Japanese liberation. And the Japanese bypassed it for reasons we'll never know. And um, the first ship to arrive was Australian. So, so the mutineers were all arrested and then discreetly after the war they were hanged. Uh, and those Salinese defense brigades on Ceylon were quietly disarmed and applied to other construction and that kind of thing. So in my game, not only does the British player not know the Japanese, if the Japanese will invade, but if the Japanese do invade, he doesn't know that these Salinese defense brigades will remain loyal. There's a 33% chance they'll stay loyal, a 33% chance they'll desert and just disappear, and a 33% chance they'll join the Japanese. And uh, so, for the British player, it's a nightmare game uh, if the Japanese player plays his cards right. And once again, that was because of discovered information in my research. Where did you find this information? 
how what there's is there a lot of uh, there's not a lot of writing in English about the about the Dutch part of the I mean I'll, I I find all the stuff about Java C and you know the yeah. the, the Philippines well, but the, but the Dutch Dutch part is hard to hard to come up with. Well, not if you uh, know how to search internet. Um, there are a lot of Dutch sources now because for the Dutch this was a traumatic campaign you know and the. Dutch civilians went through hell uh, during the occupation. And there is a lot out there. And um, if you know how to search, and I'm, you know, I'm a librarian, and never get into a trivial pursuit game with a librarian. Okay. Anyway, uh, especially a reference librarian. Anyway, um, so I've, I've, I've found Dutch sources and um, Japanese sources. There, there were Japanese officers were interviewed after the war by the U.S. and a lot of the transcripts are up there on the net if you hmm. can find them. Interesting. That, and uh, these are these are I mean these are reliable. The the sources are 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 legit. They're not the the usual uh, internet sort of. Uh, no, crazy it's bakery. not. It's not such and such forum. All those you can find good information on those, but you, like you imply, you do have to verify that. Those forums can lead you to search for critical sources. Interesting. Well, I want to hear about Dana Lombardi and John Hill and uh, your because th- this is uh, something you had mentioned to me uh, by email before before we okay, talk. Well, well, first, let's go through my other games. Okay. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <clears throat> now we 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 saw Sturmalk Austin yeah, we did. by Tw and the, the map. You know, they've got the uh, German stamping on it and all this sort of it was neat. But, of course, here is Masa uh, Hiro Yamazaki's yeah. Six Angles version. Yes. Which is just beautiful. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's that's for the listeners. That's a uh, so what happens often is that uh, the uh, American games get made in this sort of, you know, uh, kind of garage band kind of uh, way, and then a copy get, makes its way to Japan, and the Japanese just turn it into this beautiful sort of uh, well, aesthetic product. Yeah, now there was a revision. Not only are there uh, juggernaut German field armies, infantry armies, but I also made um, four, the four panzer groups into juggernaut units. Oh, so you... Uh, so you uh, um, you astellified it. Not quite. Um, there's just one Panzer Corps in each Panzer Group of unit, but that, but the Panzer Group of units represent all the uh, tail of the Panzer Group and, and artillery and, and stronger, uh, etc. And of course, Guderians, as I remember, are just a factor faster than everybody else's. Of course, fast time. Now, now um, Clash of Steel is Sturmnock Austin with Keith Poulter. Keith, Keith loved this game. Keith Poulter and Larry Hoffman's double-blind intelligence rules. I've never played it. Um, it uh, for me, it was it was too deep. But they guys who've gotten into this love it. There are three kinds of intelligence: electronic, field, and aerial intelligence. I think those are the major three, and to try to see what's on the other side. Um, Anyway, they they did make a mistake in the map, although it's not death. The river, uh, Diezna, uh, near um, Kiev, they suddenly got shifted um, a few hexides out into nowhere. 
Um, then here is um, Leyte Golf Naval Chess Game, published as um, professional publish, publishing in Game jur uh, Journal number 11 in Japan. And Tetsuya Nakamura um, liked my, and of course his graphics are infinitely better than what's on um, my other webpage, which is lcoat.tripod.com. Um, and uh, it plays fast. It's sort of double blind. <coughs> and uh, my, the allies should win. You know, they, we, have, we had overwhelming strength. And basically what the Japanese player has to do is mass, uh, use air units at the end of one day and then throw them along with the Japanese ships arriving the next day. Well, my son, Robert, uh, once again, he's an aerospace engineer now uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I can remember a game against him where he was a Japanese, and at the end of the game, he was chasing what was left of my four fast carrier groups west through the Sibuyan Sea where they couldn't operate aircraft. It was that bad. Um, so anyway, but that's a good little game. Uh, of course, here's Teutons. And um, Tom Russell, Tom and Mary Russell. Hollenspiel, um, yep. Did anything I wanted. Uh, I kept copyright publication rights as I had for my other games. Except for one, Russia's War, and David Heath, uh, that was early on, um, I let him have copyright to that, and I haven't let my copyright and publication rights, I, I license my game designs, I don't sell them anymore. Um, anyway, um, I had done simple games on Cotney history for, you see, I went down to Gothenburg, Sweden, where... Patrick Tremru, who's Breton French, he grew up in Brittany, he married to a, a pretty Swedish girl, um, working for Volvo at the time, I think. Um, and he had this, and he heard about me and so invited me down. And on the train back, I was thinking about France in 1914, and I thought to myself, hey, um, you know, I would keep it at core level, keep it simple. You know, why not? So I did one. Uh, France 1940, you know, there was France 1940, and I did France 1914. And people liked it because it was simple, and it had all the essential elements of uh, the, <clears throat> the situation, uh, whether to go directly toward Paris or through Belgium and bring in the British, etc. And then I did one France uh, about France in 1940 called uh, Assault on the West or something. And so Tom wanted to combine the two games because it was they were the same scale, which was part of the intent of my design. So you can see the advance from World War I operations to Blitzkrieg operations uh, on the same map, <clears throat> the same unit level. And then he mentioned in passing, I told him the story about um, Sheridan and Burnside, who were military advisors to the Prussians for the Franco-Prussian War, have you ever heard the story? Nope. You want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we were steamed at the French for moving into Mexico while we were busy dealing with the Confederacy. And so not only did we help um, the Mexicans overthrow Maximilian, who was apparently a good good person, but he was serving European interests, uh, which we did not want uh, reinvading the Western Hemisphere. 
Um, so to, to get back at the French war, Napoleon III, um, who did not appreciate his friend Maximilian being killed, um, we sent over Burnside and Sheridan to advise the Prussians. And, for example, um, and I don't have a source for this, I forget where I read it, and the guy who told me this anecdote had done a graduate research paper uh, on the war, and um, I can't find him or the citation. But um, anyway, um, so Burnside, who was an excellent staff officer, pointed out that instead of running supplies up and down two separate tracks, if they connected the tracks at the top toward the front, they could run circular routes and increase the supply by tenfold or something. And, of course, for the Prussians, uh, their, their war was an artillery war. The French, they had um, professional soldiers who were marksmen, um, the, the Prussian losses were from rifle fire. The French losses were from artillery fire. And so I did this really simple little game on the Franco-Prussian War, and I said, hey, why don't we kick it in with uh, and, uh, with the three-game set? And then the the article, the title, Teutons, the, the image of the blonde-headed barbarians coming out in hordes from the eastern forest, dark eastern forest, like the Toito Burger Vault, um, that was my idea, and that caused some controversy. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was uh, greatly pleased by the box cover, and then, and then finally, brand new, Patton's Lorraine campaign by Banner of War in China, and oh, notice at the bottom it says Louis R. Cody, and then it says something R something, because um, they don't have a character for R in Chinese. But this is beautifully, it's just as beautifully done as the the Japanese do. And apparently Patton is popular among Chinese history buffs and uh, war gamers. Is that right? Yeah. And um, I I licensed this for, um, he paid up front. Uh, So did Maz Yamazaki. And um, for about four years, and he can make as many copies as he wants, uh, their Kickstarter, they went to 275% in two days. Um, and uh, it, he wants he wants to do two more of my games. Uh, the course game, which is titled Juggernauts, mm-hmm. Panzer Kyle versus Art Corps, Art, Artillery Corps. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's also interested in doing a Chinese version of Sturmlock Austin. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, apparently they play Sturmlock Austin in, in uh, the Chinese war gamers do. So, um, you know, that's that's nice. Uh, that's a month's rent uh, here in Norway. Um, and <laughs> I, I, yeah, which I need. So um, if, we, if we keep this up, that can be a good bonus to keep me, keep my nose above water. Um Let's see. Let me look at my list here. Yeah, you have a list. So, so for the listeners, uh, I was talking to Lou uh, about what we we're going to talk about, and he came. He's like, "No, I have a list. I have a list of things we're talking about." So it was, yeah. it was really great. Uh, some of my game friends. Um, there was Charles and Bob in Davenport, Iowa, and Charles was quite a collector. He had every game coming out. Then eventually he gave up because and became a miniatures player, and finally. 
uh, late in life, um, got married and has a child, and I'm really glad to see that. Uh, up in Juneau, there was the Juneau War Games Club, and um, Bruce Dawson, uh, Dave Hammock, J.W., um, forget his last, um, Jim Miller, but two kids I'm really proud of, Jim Telenius went on to the Coast Guard Academy and graduated and is now um, at Norfolk Navy Yard. And Mike uh, uh, Barger went to West Point and graduated. And I've, um, Facebook, et cetera, I've been in touch with these guys. And then, of course, the uh, RE's War Games Club. The, the War Games Club in Macomb, I was at Western Illinois University for a few years, and then living in Macomb for 20 years. And there was a War Games Club there, but it was mostly um, Warhammer and uh, stuff like that. And they weren't that interested in conventional military and naval history games. Um, but when I moved over here, I met a Norwegian girl, history graduate student on Internet, and um, um, things went well. And uh, so my younger son was born, and then she got homesick, and so... Uh, for his father to be with him, I came over here. I went from a four-bedroom house, two-car garage, two sailboats, two fireplaces, dining room, full basement, um, to a two-bedroom block apartment over here in Norway. Um, but there's a tremendous war games club, uh, Ari's, here in Oslo. And these guys are grown yards, um, grown yard, grown yards, uh, Europa. And of course, uh, you know, I got to regale them with stories about Frank and this kind of thing. And um, um, they they have marathon monster game games. Every other meeting, every other week, <clears throat> they pull out. They have big big map cabinets, and they pull out the sections of the maps. And they were doing a big one for World in Flames, and now they're doing uh, War in Europe. And, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, they, they set out the tables, and then they put all the sections together, and then they get all the units. Well, they've got the, they've got the units in position because they have the maps on um, styrofoam, which they put into the uh, map case uh, slots. And uh, so they do a turn or two every week. And yeah, yeah, they took the Axis took Moscow, but the Russians are holding on handily, and of course things are. Well, I, you see, you were asking me what other games have I played, and I, I don't play usually don't play other games because I have my own games to design, and I think that's true for most designers. I, I'm interested in other games to see con concepts and things like that, but. Um, I really, uh, usually I have my own idea about a topic that interests me, and I want a playable game, which meets the histor historical requirement to the extent I th think is important and to the extent that's necessary, to the extent that I think is vital and to the extent I think is necessary without adding undue complexity. Although I do like... Like, for example, one of my special rules for the Ardennes and then uh, my War in Europe campaign game from D-Day on 
is the Waffen-SS ruthlessness and consequential GI rage rule. Have you seen that in my games? Ah, okay, well, you know, Hitler uh, sent a directive that the um, Battle of the Bulge German forces should be ruthless because this was desperate, you know, they... And uh, so the SS, of course, didn't need too much encouragement, and they massacred, what, like 500 innocent Belgian civilians and a total of 300 Americans. It wasn't just the 100 at Americans at Malmedy. And so in the game, the German player has the option. During one turn, any attack involving SS, he can jack up one shift which might be crucial to grabbing uh, the supply dump somewhere around Spa, or the oil dump, fuel dump somewhere around Spa. Um, and, uh, but in every turn after that, after the GIs recovered from the shock, any attack involving not just SS, but also parachute, because they wore camouflage battle smocks like the SS, and the GIs couldn't tell which was which, um, those any subsequent attack gets dropped a shift. So the German player is tempted for the initial, and of course the opening turn turns are crucial um, in any offensive, uh, is tempted for that one turn advantage. But then if he takes it, and that didn't play out as decisively as he hoped it would, he's going to pay for his atrocity. So there's a moral teaching point there. And in more than one game, I am ashamed to say, I have succumbed to the temptation and gotten punished and lost the game for it. Um, anyway, um, to get back here. Um, Let's see. Oh, um, my Uncle Homer was in CBs. My Uncle John was in subs off of Japan. Um, okay. Now, uh, well, right now, let me tell the story about John Hill, yeah. Dana Lombardi. Mm-hmm. The late John Hill. The late. And the very much with us Dana Lombardi. Yes, yes. Yeah, in fact, I think, no, it was Don Featherstone. Um Somewhere I said, well, you know, sorry we lost Don Featherstone. And either from Don directly or indirectly, I got back, no, no, I'm still, but of course he died. And I met him at a Historicon, and he's, he autographed my naval, his Naval War Games book for me. Anyway, um, so in Alaska, I was in the Metric Education Task Force. Uh, this was part of the time during... President Carter's administration wanted to, us to convert to metric. And so the federal government would have grants that the states would compete for. And members of the Metric Education Task Force Committee committees in the states would go to Washington, one each, and judge these applications. Of course, Alaska had no chance because these professional grantsmen uh, especially on the East Coast, knew how to had friends in the system and knew how to write, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a good junket to Washington, D.C. Eventually, I recommended Senator Ted Stevens that the grants be block grants because Alaska didn't have a chance in the next year they were in the whole. So I had no more junkets to Washington 
for that. But anyway, um, so I now I had met Anatoly Dushev, who is the cultural exchanges attaché at the Soviet embassy, um, had just become that, who could hardly speak English, which was suspicious. But anyway, <clears throat> I gave him a copy of um, the destruction of Army Group Center, and it turned out his guards' rifle regiment uh, took Baranovici, which was the key junction to the southwest of Minsk, which helped set up the the pocket, the surrounding of Army Group Center and destruction of it. So he was very pleased. Well, anyway, um, the following year, I went down there. <clears throat> and uh, this time I got, there's a whole another story about Rokossovsky's wooden teeth, etc., etc. But anyway, um, toward the end of my time there, um, Dujev, and you can see Dujev on YouTube. He, um, he accepted the Academy Award for Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. Johnny Carson was the moderator. Brooke Shields gave him the, uh, gave him the Oscar. He gave her a kiss. Anyway, um, Dujev authorized um, his assistant, Sergei Skotchko, who was my age, uh, to show us two of the Unknown War TV series installments. And I had requested Barbarossa and Stalingrad. Each of these runs for an hour. And they, they have footage that I haven't seen elsewhere of German or Russian tanks, etc., um, and I think they even captured some German film. Anyway, Burt Lancaster narrates it. So anyway, I called, uh, I knew Dana and John were in the area in Virginia at the time, Northern Virginia. And I, I got in touch with Dana. And I said, okay, well, listen, Dana, would you guys like to come along to see these films and also maybe talk about your games? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, well, listen, tell, tell John uh, and, and bring him too. And Dana said, well... Um, I'm not sure he'd be interested. I said, Dana, you know, I, I suspected Dana because both of them had just come out with Stalingrad games. Um, I suspected, you know, maybe there was some competition, but they, you know, they were working for the same outfit, I think. Yeah, well, so well, Streets of Stalingrad versus Battle for Stalingrad. Right. You're talking about John Hill's Battle for Stalingrad. Both of which are excellent games. Um, I once had the, the best copy of Streets of Stalingrad and then had to sell it for money to move over, for a little money to move over, but some, Guy was getting it for his brother who was coming back from Iraq, and, you know, it was nice. Anyway, um, so, no, Dana, uh, you got to invite John. Okay. So they picked me up at the hotel, and then we have to find the mosque, the Soviet embassy housing compound. And we couldn't find it. Now, this is their city. I mean, here they've analyzed the streets of Stalingrad in detail, right? And they couldn't find the Soviet embassy housing compound in their own city. And we're, we're dashing around. And finally, we went down this one back side street. Here was the entrance. You know, it was in sort of a secluded area. Actually, it was a big area, but in a very secluded location. And we made it up, and Sergei Skotchko was waiting for us. And so we got out of the car, and John goes right up to Sergei, and he grabs him by to shake his hand, grabs him by the hand, starts pumping his hand, saying, hi, I'm John Hill. I designed a squad leader. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Scotch Go looks over at me like, 
what is going on? And Dana looks, then I, then I looked at Dana and he was looking at me like, I told you so. <laughs> so, and you know, John was a great guy, uh, brilliant, um, as you say, impressionist designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good, good guy. He took a lot of heat from certain people you never should have. Um, but he was, he was a character. <laughs> So we we go into the uh, into the lobby of the auditorium of the and here's this this big portrait of Apollo Soyuz up on the wall and and John who's gotten himself next to Sergei says oh yes very appropriate beautiful you know it's in Dana's looking at me <laughs> so we go up the stairs we go into the auditorium here's here's this pretty little girl and this little boy sitting in the back who I. Uh, who turned out to be uh, Sergei's wife and, and little son. And so we, we go down the aisle, and as we get to the row we're going to sit at, Sergei holds me by the arm and pushes John in first. <laughs> so so he had me sitting between him and John. And, uh, you know, once again, the films, The Unknown War, Burt Lancaster narrator, were uh, are excellent as far as the footage and this kind of thing. And then Sergey afterwards, uh, we had to get out of there because he had another engagement to go to, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, the other, we're, they're driving me back to the hotel. And in the car, they're going, oh, boy, you know, those Russians and da, 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 you know, and, ah, you know, et cetera. And so I write this little note and I put, careful, they may still be listening. <laughs> and I hand it to the front seat and all of a sudden there's dead silence and suddenly the whole conversation changed. Well, I hope we certainly improve Russian-American relations. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That was and funny. Dana remembers this, and he remembers the little note. You know, it's something to laugh about now. Yeah. And it, it was it was then. But, you know, great memory. A lot of human stories out of this hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, games of mine I'd like to recommend. Yeah. Okay? Cool. Okay. Um, well, for first, of course, there's... Um, German Eagle versus Russian Bear. My daughter did the artwork, and it's free on Coatney History. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eagle Attack is a point-to-point, lots of dice game about um, uh, Market Garden to Arnhem. Okay. And actually, it's very, you know, the terrain around there was a lot boggy, and, and serious movement was confined to the roads anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's fast, and it, there is a lot to it. You can really get caught by it. Um, Moscow Embattled is my little Moscow micro game. Oh, also, I'll mention on Talk Consim World, under Eastern Front Games, John, at my sectioned off Lou Cotney Games, so you can see all my Russian Front Games in one place there. Mm-hmm. Um, Moscow Embattled is just a few pieces. Uh, it's all on one sheet. It's very fast. It's, it's lots of dice, but not that many dice because there aren't that many factors. Now, a game I would like to recommend, urge, is Task Forces and Convoys. Here we go. I designed this for my seven-year-old daughter, uh, Johanna, uh, to have something we could do together. And it's sort of a cross between Old Battleship and Stratego, except, excuse me, in the advanced, not really, but... Um, game on the hexagonal board, you can move three ship units at a time together as a task force. That's one movement. Okay. 
Of course, if you have two ship units in separate places, that, that would be two units or two movements. And if you only have one movement, you can only move one then. So command and control is very up. So, and I've designed stand-up pieces for it. And there are his, there are historical scenarios for all the major Pacific and East, uh, European theater uh, naval battles. Like here are the pieces. Where are we here? There we go. Um, oh, okay. For the Japanese. And as you can see, they're triangular. So on one side, you have the red. You don't know what it is. And on the other side, you have the ship. Mm -hmm. And then you have a, a battle matrix. You know, battleships usually sink cruisers, and cruisers usually sink destroyers. Mm -hmm. And then carriers have a 2x range, but at the extended range, um, not so effective. Uh, here's what a sheet of unmade ships looks like. Mm -hmm. But the point is, yeah. this... This is a simple game for family and friends and can be a gateway game um, to get them interested in, of all things, naval games, um, but his, historical chess games generally. Oh, um, also, you know, I designed paper models. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, let's see here. Do you have some photos of those on your website? Yes. Yeah. Here is a German K-class light cruiser. Mm -hmm. So Lou's showing me an incredibly detailed model that looks like it's made out of paper. Uh, I would love to have the that way to find heavy, see that on the website. Heavy cardstock paper. Now this is uh, H. His, Majest His Majesty's Australian ship Perth, which died with our USS Houston in the Battle of Sunda Strait on the night of February-March 1942. And I was in a miniatures naval war game with, his with Captain Hector Waller's grandson. Captain Waller died with his ship. And he had that model out at the, uh, in the lead of the Allied battle van. It was a hypothetical what-if... Um, <clears throat> Prince of Wales and uh, Repulse had not been sunk by torpedo bombers. And, um, the, oh, he, Ray Rungan was the uh, other Allied player. Uh, Ray's a groanyard and also miniaturist. And um, they danced in and out of my long lanced extended torpedo range. And I used up all my torpedoes. And they had me. I, they won strategically. Um, so let's see what else here. Um, the Mortain game. And then, yes, uh, Robot Barbarossa. Now, I, I'd like to say a special thanks as a game, as a grown yard and a game designer to Mark of the grown yard webpage or website, uh, John Krantz, Consim World, um, the guys at Board Game Geek. And, of course, Bill Armantrot of the Miniatures page. Um, thanks to Internet, our hobby has been reborn, has been resurrected. And these guys have been fundamental to the survival and the flourishing of the hobby. And so we all owe them a tremendous thanks. Um, let's see. Oh, and also I have miniature. I have a naval miniatures game, which is free on Coatney History, uh, titled Naval Action. And Frank was actually going to publish that. Game Designers Workshop was seriously considering publishing that. But then, of course, they got sued by TSR. 
and uh, also the Pentagon reneged on a uh, uh, couple thousand copies of Desert Shield Factbook, and, and so they went out of business, tragically for our hobby. Um, so, um, naval action uh, is free on uh, Cody History also. Okay. I'll... Uh, uh, Direct people to that because that you there's a there's for the for the for the listeners if you're just listening to this uh, go to Cotney History and just page through all of uh, all of Lou's designs they're just all up there and it's just fun to I got the uh, the robot Barbarossa uh, link and I printed it out and I have a giant table sized version of the map with the regular size counters so they don't have to stack anything so. Uh, it's uh, yeah. Go go. We'll we'll have a link for it. it it'll be great. Yeah. Well, like I say, it's a whole different game, um, and I've become addicted to it. Other games I've been interested in for by other designers for um, the um, 1944 Race to the Rhine by Phalanx Games, Yarrow and uh, Valdemar, and of course. Being the incorrigible revisionist, I've suggested revisionists, revisions of posted revision pieces on Board Game Geek and this kind of thing, and they've taken it um, positively um, because, you know, that was uh, a revolutionary approach also. And um, it's good to see these major innovations in, in, the, uh, in the hobby. Um, one thing, one final thing maybe, to emphasize are my dedications uh, with my games, which most uh, game designers or publishers don't have. And um, I really believe the more we study the Second World War, the better our chances it will be the last World War. I think it was my wargaming um, uh, contacts, or it was on a wargame forum that I, uh, or no, I, I was quoting what I was saying to a friend who at that time was the director of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. I've never been an employed intelligence officer, but they gave me a lot of support back up in Alaska where I defended nuclear deterrence and national defense. Um, General Richard X. Larkin, General Richard G. Stilwell, whose names would uh, make some folks sit up. Um, anyway, um, it, with my games, I have memorial dedications, and I also, and now also, war should be confined to history books and games. We never want another world war. And um, I have been very political, which has caused a lot of controversy among some war gamers, uh, trying to oppose uh, our neoconservative, they're not conservatives, um, wars. Um, in the Mideast, and then most dangerously, our coup in uh, Kiev, which broke our Budapest peace treaty with the Russians and threatens Russia with an interventionist NATO all the way up to Kharkov at their throats. So I've got four children, and I want to keep them alive, and I want them to have a future. I supported Trump rather than Hillary in World War III, but his stance against the environment um, <clears throat> anyway, so, um, oh, uh, behind me, my children, uh, there is my older son who taught me computer-assisted design when he was uh, 13. He's now married to a beautiful Irish-American girl. There's my daughter, Rebecca, who did the artwork for uh, Germany vs. Russian Bear. 
and her husband, Nathan, who's a meteorological scientist in Colorado. There's Rohan when he was one or two years old. Rohan the Red, red hair. I have ancestors from the Shetland Islands, so, you know, Viking red hair. And here he is um, getting his church book at the age of four. And here he is with his brand new baby sister, Johanna. And um, here she is wearing Daddy's Hopalong Cassidy jacket. And she's got this expression on her face. I don't know why you're putting me through this, Daddy, but I love you. <laughs> but I took the photo. And, uh, oh, and then pictures by Johanna, etc., etc. And again, she was the person I designed task forces and convoys for. And uh, how many times did you guys play? Uh, at least once, whenever I visit them, which is about <laughs> once or twice a month. Uh-huh. And she, um, I met her teacher in a uh, supermarket down there. Uh-huh. And um, her teacher looked at me and she said, "You know, Johanna is very clever." <laughs> She um, she didn't miss a single question in her end-of-the-year third-grade mathematics examination, which the Norwegians take very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was the only one in her class not to miss a single question. Well, then she'll be good at calculating uh, combat odds. Yes. You can teach yeah, her about Austin. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and she uh, knows how to take it. Task Force and Convoys, she knows what a ship, she doesn't have to see what one of my ships is to know what it is by the way I've been moving it. She's amazing. Well, Lou, uh, I think uh, we've covered a ton of ground. I really appreciate your time. I love your stories. I've uh, really, I really enjoyed way back uh, Storm Knock Austin, and I've, uh, I'm I'm still going to, I have a, I plan on uh, doing a series on, uh, sort of the development of East Front games, and I think you're going to have some plenty of stuff there. The Robot Barbarossa, I'm uh, I I'm still working through. I've got some rules questions, buddy, so I'm going to I'm going to email you some rules questions because uh, okay. you have a very interesting style of writing rules. I want to say uh, you just sort of jump into it. You start like the robot. So for the people who download Bar- Robot Barbarossa. It's going to start, the rules will start with the combat results table. It's not a typo. You're not missing any pages in front of that. They just It just starts with the combat results table. So yeah, The reason is because instead of having the table on the map sheet or whatever, uh-huh. um, you're going to be looking at the table on the rules. And so rather than having to open up the rules to find the table, it's right there for you. It's right there. Okay. Well, uh, I will, I'm going to have a report on that one because uh, it's a very interesting game. And it's, and it's one of the few, it's one of the few games that actually is designed for solo. I think the, um, the only other one I really know is, uh, Gary Graber's, uh, Barbarossa campaign. Yes. And, um, notice that, the robot, whether the robot is the Russians or the Germans, there are lanes, especially for the Germans, as in the case of 1944 Race to the Rhine, and Phalanx is doing a 1944 Race to Moscow, although that looks, they keep delaying it, so many pieces, etc. And um, so the robot directives uh, control the opposing player, whichever player that is. Or you can let the robots play each other and just move the pieces according to the robot directives. Or you can have two-sided games, um, uh, two, three, four, five, six players. 
So um, its format is very flexible to all kinds of treatments, but as a solitaire game, with especially with not just the hidden individual units, but the hidden overall strength strengths of the units mechanic, it's a whole different experience. It's and either side you don't know, you know, for sure, and all kinds of exciting surprises yeah. in the game. Yeah, that's um, that's the uh, the interesting thing that the, the sort of overall operational uncertainty that that you sort of have to figure out as you go. I really I really like that concept. There's so you said you you offered that to um, to Tom Russell at Hollenspiel. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you know, I just you just sent I it. didn't formally offer it to oh, him. I, I just asked him to take a look take at, a look at it. it yeah. one, one other game, as far yeah. as not knowing what is my Barbarossa f- file, <clears throat> and this was done about 1997, and that has three different or. Um, orders of battle for the Russians. You have the historical, which is basically a transition. You have Marshal Kulik's, or from Budyani's stables, which is heavy infantry and light cavalry. Basically, the Civil War generals having control over the uh, table of organization of the new Red Army. And you have Tukhachevsky's Twist, which has both the heavy armor breakthrough, and the lighter armor exploitation units. And to some extent, um, I tried to set the game up so that which order of battle the Russian had would be obscure, but just within a few turns. You know, once you run into a Tukhachevsky heavy armor unit, you know what you're running into. But in Robot, Bar- in Robot Barbarossa, we... This last game, we played the whole game tour as the Russians, me as the Germans. It was a two-player, live-player game. And neither of us realized that he had the strong Russian infantry until the game was over. Hmm. So, anyway. That's interesting. Well, I, I, I hope that uh, Tom... I hope somebody picks that up. Or I mean, it could... It could uh, <laughs> it could really fill a, fill, a, fill a hole for some people who want to play some solitaire Barbarossa. Yeah, People are really intimidated by assembling their own units. Yeah, and, well. of course, these Russian units are two-sided. Now, if you play strictly the Russian side, the German units are only one-sided, and you don't have to put the backside right. on the Russian units. Yeah. But, um, anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a... The, when, so, for the listeners, I did, I did put the whole set together. Um, problem with making your own units that are double-sided if you need to obscure if you need to have some uncertainty is that after a couple playthroughs you'll start noticing little imperfections because you you know you cut the the things as well as you possibly could but you'll just see oh you know there's a little there's a little rip on there that that's going to be the number you know that's going to be that and so that's that's the problem with 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 print and play uh Maybe my scissors are sharper, but um, I've got mine so uniform I can't tell the difference. Really? Okay. And, you know, there's so many pieces that some can be in one sorting array Mm -hmm. before one game, or they could be in another sorting array for the next game. Okay. Um, And... um, uh, yeah, I, don't squint I, too I, hard I, I, at the, at the counters. Have, be all right. You have to scissor the pieces on the unknown yes, side. Right, exactly. Not, so the, not the yeah, because it'll do, there'll always be a little bit of of, uh, of misalignment. So just do it on the on the known side. Lou, thank you so much. 
uh, best of luck to you and the further designs and uh, maybe we'll need to get a, a Lou Coatney Preservation Society to start downloading everything and putting it on a separate website. Thank you, Bruce. Since I've been over in Norway and retired, and then after uh, the breakup of the marriage, but once again, I can still see my children, I've designed 30 games over here. And uh, it's, it's been, I've got an ideal retirement situation, especially with the RE's Game Club uh, uh, downtown. And um, I got to play the guys who did the Kampenon Norga game, uh, the designers. The which one? And, Kampenon Norga, it's a uh, card-driven game, uh-huh. uh, beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on the Internet. You'll have to look it up. I think, oh, they did sell. I gave it a good review in um, uh, Paper Wars, mm-hmm. and they suddenly started getting orders from Hong Kong and <laughs> Japan, and they, they have sold out. But uh, it's, it's a conventional, um, uh, those... Uh, sort of access to allies, but these guys, being from Norway, mm-hmm. um, uh, did an excellent job. My own Norway game, uh, eight, 9 April 1940, Norge Angrepet, mm-hmm. is good in its way. And I got research assistance from the uh, Akersus Festing, Akersus, that's the Norway's Pentagon mm-hmm. uh, Museum Librarian, mm-hmm. which gave me the mobilization information I needed. And it's it's basically different from Kampenom Norga. But Kampenom Norga, I've played, and of course I gave a good write-up to, is is an exciting game. Mine is more like chess. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'll look that one up. Lou, I know it's uh, we're, we're nine hours difference, so it's uh, probably in the evening for you. So you have a good night, and uh, we will talk to you again. You have a good evening too, Bruce, and thank you very much for your interest in my games and ideas and uh, thank you for your service to the hobby doing these. Thank you. All right. You have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.